Well, we're very glad that you're here with us in worship this morning. Uh, as you can hear, I'm a little froggy this morning. Been uh, struggling with uh, cold for the last week and a half or so, uh, trying to fight that. So uh, I'm a little, little froggy. If you have a Bible handy, I'd like to invite you to open to Genesis. We'll be starting in the eighth chapter there, and we'll go all the way from eight one to nine seventeen today. I want you to keep that handy there. We'll be on uh, pages five and six in the pew Bibles there. Uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to grab that pew Bible, put your name on it. It's yours. Take it with you. We've got extras. And then also want to uh, invite you to follow along in the worship guide on the inside there where we have the sermon notes and uh, some of that outline and also life group questions and homework for you there. Let's go ahead and pray as we uh, dive in this morning. Lord God, it's our prayer today to hear from your word and to be changed. We want to have hearts that because of the presence of your spirit in us are continually renewed into your image. We ask, Lord, that you would refashion us because of our presence here today, not just because we've studied your word together, but because we have uh, sung praises to you. We've spoken with you in prayer. We've received encouragement from other believers. So, Lord, we ask that our time today would be fruitful toward the end of you making us more and more your child, making more and more and more, and more children of us who love you for who you are and your character and nature as well as what you've done for us. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we'll jump into Genesis in just a second here. I don't, I don't exactly remember when uh, this happened, but my mom recounted this story to me this week. It was sometime in the late 70s. I was about six years old. And my younger brother, David, had just been born. And uh, my dad was on staff at First Christian Johnson City, and there was this family there that we were good friends with. And so uh, we would often go to their house um, on Sunday for lunch after church. And so this happened to be a day when we were going to their house for lunch uh, after church. And we all get there and the two families arrive and they all kind of suddenly find out, hey, where's little Scotty? He's not with us. And there's that conversation of, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. And so all of a sudden, there they are, scrambling back to church to try to find a little Scotty somewhere. And apparently... Apparently, I was in a Sunday school room by myself. Who knows what I was doing, playing with blocks or, or something. Uh, happy as a lark. No idea what was going on. No idea that I had been forgotten. Reminds me of a story from high school when we were in youth group. and uh, It was my senior year, and a friend of mine uh, named Matt, we realized as we were about 10 to 15 minutes down the road on the bus, uh, somebody from the back yelled, Hey! <laughs> Where's Matt? And uh, everybody looked around and said, uh-oh, he's not here. So uh, we had to track back and, uh, and find Matt on the slopes. And there he was. Uh, a couple of us found him on the slopes by himself, happy as a lark, skiing, no care in the world, totally unaware that he had been forgotten. It's one thing to be left behind on accident. 
How many of you all have ever experienced that kind of thing where you've been left behind? I know that I have a couple times when my parents forgot me at school or at, at, a, at a sports practice, and, and I knew they loved me, I knew they cared for me, I knew it was an accident, and so I didn't really take it personally um, much. But it's one thing to be forgotten like that. It's one thing to be forgotten by accident and to know that you're cared for and you're loved. It's another thing, it's a different thing altogether, to feel forgotten. It's another thing altogether to feel forgotten as if you're not cared for and loved. You ever sat at an event where awards and accolades are being lauded on someone else and you think to yourself, you know what, I I really thought I deserved that. And so you sit there quietly with a painted smile, uh, clapping for someone else. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen encouragement and praise heaped on somebody else generously. When you could really use a kind word yourself. That's that feeling of being forgotten. Maybe you've watched as conversations happened all around you. They seem to happen all around you as if you were sort of not there, as if you were invisible and you weren't a part of the action. That's what it's like to feel forgotten. Maybe you've experienced the feeling when the phone never seems to ring, what it seems like when no one ever stops by, when it seems like the world could just just go on without you. That's that feeling, that feeling of being forgotten. And that's a different thing altogether. If you've experienced that kind of loneliness before, you start to ask yourself questions about your own significance. You start to tell yourself things like, no one would even care if I weren't even here. You sort of, you sort of look up at the heavens and you say, hello, God, still down here. Have you forgotten me? That's the feeling accompanies that kind of loneliness in life. And let's be frank, we've all experienced that kind of feeling of loneliness. Which means that we all have a decent appreciation for what Noah must have felt as he drifted on the seas for an entire year on that ark. Sure, he was a man of faith who walked with God. He was called blameless in his generation, Genesis 6, 9 says. But he was also a human. And the sea and a huge ark with no one else around other than you and the folks in the ark can be a terribly lonely kind of place. Imagine drifting on a large ship on an open sea night after night, month after month, for an entire year with nothing in sight but smelly animals and grumpy in-laws. During those months, whether he had faith or no faith, Noah must have wondered if God had forgotten him. He maybe said at the same time like we sometimes do, Hello, God, remember me? I'm down here. Just a friendly reminder that we're on this huge ship 
this vast sea and nobody's around, floating helplessly. We're all a little bit tired, sick of the same old food, maybe a little bit grumpy. Have you ever felt alone on the deep like Noah? You ever felt those nagging questions of doubt? Like, where were you, God, when I was hurting? Maybe you've felt that way after you've lost a job or you've experienced that kind of crippling loneliness after you've lost a spouse or a child. Maybe you've felt that pain of a divorce or a, or a broken relationship or friendship. Hello, God. Remember me? Where are the rainbows and the promises? That's a feeling we've all experienced, friends. And so, sometimes what that means for us, this side of heaven, is that it can be hard to trust. It can be hard to trust and to have faith. In a world where we've all experienced that kind of estrangement and loneliness and broken promises. It can be really hard to have faith in a God who says, I will keep my promises. The temptation becomes to to hunker down and refuse to risk. The temptation becomes to build around ourselves and our lives and our relationships these emotional fortresses that refuse to feel with another person or to be open so that someone else can feel with us. That's what happens in a world of broken promises. The encouragement of today's text, however, (laughs) is that God remembers his promises. In a world where we experience that kind of brokenness and loneliness and frustration and fear and estrangement from one another, we have a God who keeps his promises because God remembered Noah. Look at 8 verse 1 with me. We're going to camp out on just these four words here for just a a few minutes at the beginning, and, and we'll make it through the whole passage here, but I want to focus on, on this part of it because it's a turning point in this entire story of Noah. It says, but, but contrary to the feelings that Noah must have experienced, contrary, if you'll remember from last week, contrary to that decreation, the judgment that God brought on the whole world because of the flood and because of their sin. Contrary to that, it says, but God. God is a God who is a turning point God. It says, but God remembered Noah. Last week when we looked at the idea of of, of decreation of God's judgment for sin, we talked about how God... uh, righteously and justifiably judges the world for sin. Now, that's a, that's a hard concept to think about as we unpacked that a little bit last week, the idea that God is justifiably angry at sin. You know, we feel that, we've experienced that, but it's a whole thing altogether different to say that it's justifiably anger at sin. Correctly stated, in fact, you don't need to add the words justifiably 
or righteously when we say that God judges? When we say that God is judge, what we really mean is that he is perfect and he is holy. Therefore, he is just. He is justified and righteous in all his pronouncements, regardless of our perceptions. He is the only one in the history of the entire universe who is justifiably without accuser. So everything he says is absolutely true. What that means, for example, is that the word of God is the filter for our lives instead of the other way around. I think it's often tempting for us to think of our lives as the filter through which we read the authority of Scripture. In other words, we like to think we can read the Scriptures out of our life's experiences as if the aha moments only happen when the Bible seems to speak to me because of my experience. And there's certainly some of that, but if God is just and the Bible is the Word of God, then exactly the opposite should be true. Exactly the opposite should be the norm for how we read and approach the Word of God. Our experience is read through the lens of Scripture. Our experience, our emotions, our feelings, our, our interactions with one another in the world is primarily read through the lens of Scripture first, and it tells us what is true about us, regardless of what we think, regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we experience that may tell us otherwise. In fact, regardless of the deceptive emotional baggage that we way too often rely on to guide us, instead of the Holy Spirit teaching us through a heart changed by His Spirit, I'm afraid that our, our, our churches in America are filled with people who follow the spirit of this age and the world as their primary filter for the truth of God in Scripture. That's backwards. They've learned to feel a certain way, in fact, because they've been discipled by the world and by TV sets and by immature peers. And then they're surprised when they don't have the slightest desire to know and love the truth that comes from God's word. So long story short, God is just. His word is truth. Our emotions can be extremely unreliable guides when they're not coming from spirit-filled hearts that feed off the word of God and his truth. So when it says, when God says, build a boat, when there's no earthly reason and it doesn't make sense then apparently God's got something for us to learn apparently Noah didn't let his emotional filters and the expectations of a world that mocked him determine his actions so last week when we looked at the idea of decreation when God judged the world for sin this week we look at God's gracious recreation of his plans through the people of Noah and his family. And the second half today is a mirror image of the first half of the story. Uh, we, we've left this in your worship guide for you there. It shows how this is a mirror image kind of story. We are starting in that middle point F there where it says God remembered Noah. And so we are talking about the recreation of the world and God's plan as he makes a promise to Noah. Remember we talked about how God remembers as a way of saying God acts. 
in Scripture, when God remembers, he acts in a certain kind of way. And, and mostly, it's graciously on behalf of his people, but it was also in other places uh, a way of God remembering his anger at sin. So, so there's a lot going on here, but I want to make one key, one key kind of point for this whole passage today before we jump in and uh, fly through some of these verses here. The key thing is that it is so tempting for us to give up on the process. It is extremely tempting for us, just like it must have been for Noah, to give up on the process God has for us to have hearts that become like his. It's extremely hard for us to stick with that process. You can try it as you may with your willpower, with your emotions, but at some point the truth of God has to be the place from which we live our lives. And if we stick with the process like Noah did, it will show in our lives. 8.1, it says, God remembered Noah. On behalf of Noah, on behalf of Noah's faith, the fact that he walked with God and was blameless, the animals were also saved. It says this in 8.1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And it said, And God made a wind. He made a wind to blow over the earth as the waters subsided. That word there for wind is the same as spirit in Genesis 1, verse 2. At the beginning of all creation, it said that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's that same idea that the Spirit of God is the one doing this. Now, it's not like he's starting over as if the first one failed, but it does parallel and bear a resemblance to the original creation. So God made a wind blow over the earth, it says, and the waters subsided. That is, they started to go, they started to go down. Verse 2, the fountains of the deep... And the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And all the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 5, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Here in these first five verses, here in chapter 8, that's a mirror image, as you can see in that outline there. It's a mirror image of 7.17 to 24, where the waters prevailed on the earth. This is where they are going down. The same thing happens here, but a mirror image. With this detail thrown in, verse 6, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. There may be a few re, uh, reasons why Noah chose a raven uh, to determine if there was any dry land. Uh, it's well known that before the modern age of sonar and electronic devices, um, they, would, uh, they would send out birds to find if there was any land close. Uh, according to the tradition of the rabbis, the raven here was released by Noah first as an expendable bird because it was not good for uh, food nor for sacrifice. It was considered an unclean animal, and uh, they wouldn't have used it for food because uh, a raven was sort of the bottom feeder of birds. 
And so because it was sort of the bottom feeder of birds, it could have gone to and fro, like it says in that verse 7 there. It could have gone to and fro on the waters until they were dried up from the earth because um, it, was, uh, it was a feeder of, of carrion. So, so dead, dead animals on the water could have been where the, where the raven kept alive. It says, verse 7, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. This idea of dried up is, is the same language as the original creation in Genesis 1. Again, just like that, that spirit, that wind blew. So it also harkens us back to the uh, original creation account as a way of saying that God is continuing that, that work that he started in Genesis, the first chapter. Verse 8 says, Then he sent forth a dove. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. Now the dove, of course, is an altogether different bird from the raven. And uh, it's a white, clean animal that was often used in sacrifice and would be used later on by Noah. Here it says that the stated purpose of the mission of the dove is to see if the waters had subsided. But, verse 9, the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. So he put out, I'm sorry, verse 9, returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her back into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him, in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In this uh, passage from 6 to 12 here, uh, Genesis is, is focusing on the patience of Noah. He is pictured here as faithfully awaiting God's deliverance despite mounting monotony. You can understand that sending out birds and, and waiting for a sign from God and not hearing for one for weeks on end is monotonous. And it's a picture for us of that, of that temptation that we often feel to not stick with the process that God has for us. Let's read 13 through 19 here. It says this, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering off the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. It harkens back again to Genesis 1, the 28th verse. It's that creation mandate that states the purpose for which God created all things. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. <laughs> well, finally the flood is over. And they're standing on dry ground. 
Listen to how one preacher described Noah at this point. He says, what awesome faith. Righteous Noah not only displayed obedience when he did everything God commanded him over a hundred-year period while building the ark and then displayed astounding endurance and faith as in the midst of confinement and discomfort, he waited patiently for God's deliverance. There is no recorded evidence that God spoke to him during the months Noah spent on the ark or that Noah had any sort of new word from God at that point. But he persevered in faith, manifested by his amazing obedience and patience. Noah walked with God and God honored his faith. And so God blessed him. God blessed him and asked him to continue to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue it, and also added the covenant at this point. Look at verses uh, 20 and uh, 21 and 22 here for a minute there. This is where we see God's covenant taking shape explicitly in Scripture for the first time. There are hints of God's promises of grace way before this in Genesis. We've talked about them almost every week up to the last couple of weeks here in Genesis. But this becomes explicit here, this idea of God's covenant, his agreement with us. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, verse 20, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing that Noah did when he comes out of the ark is to offer a sacrifice to God. And this was obviously an act of gratitude for God's deliverance of him, but it was also an act of atonement, of making up for sin. It pictured how God made up for sin, and that was a sacrificial act by which, ho- uh, by which Noah acknowledged his sins before God and God's provision to faithfully keep his promises. And we see that taking shape in verses 21 and following here. It says, verse 21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, a seed time and harvest Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Here God responds to Noah's faith. God's response to Noah was one of grace. Noah's offering pleased God. The word used here for pleasing conveys the idea of of rest and tranquility. And it's actually related to, and it's a, it's a playoff of Noah's name here, which sounds exactly like the word for pleasing, but means rest. So, so Noah's name means rest, and this idea of pleasing God conveys rest and tranquility. In other words, Noah's offering soothed God. That's the idea of that word there, pleasing aroma. God's offering I'm sorry, Noah's offering soothed God's anger at sin. Even though it says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, even after the flood, even after Noah's faith, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature. 
And so he makes explicit his promise in verses 1 to 17 here. Let's just read through that and make a couple points about this passage here. It says this in 9, 1 to 17. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. That's back to 128 again. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, he says again, just like 128 in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all flesh on the earth. This is a key passage in all of Scripture where this idea of God's agreement with Noah and his family and ultimately with us takes explicit form in the covenant. The covenant here in Genesis becomes the basis for the work of the new covenant. When God's wrath at sin, was propitiated or, or soothed or, or made up for by his own son on the cross. Romans 3, 24 and 5 says that we are the ones who are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, the sacrifice became God himself. God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this act of Noah and his sacrifice and the offering and God making this covenant with him is that first example of Christ's propitiation for us, which would be the way for us to have relationship with him. In other words, Christ replaces sin. Christ is the the ultimate, the, the greater Noah. There are lots of things we could talk about as, as lessons from this story. But I want to just focus on one. And that's just to stick with the process. 
So stick with the process. If you're anything like me, there are times when I may not literally be forgotten, and I know people love me, but I feel forgotten. If you're anything like me, there are times when I am tempted to throw in the towel on lots of things. I imagine that Noah probably considered throwing in the towel. I mean, this guy builds a boat for some 75 years, and then there's cooped up in it with smelly animals and grumpiness and frustration that might have happened for over a year. He must have thought, seriously, God, this is your plan? I know I would have. I know I do think that this is what you intended. In the entire account of the flood, we have no indication whatsoever that Noah complained. In fact, Noah doesn't even talk at all. It just says he obeyed God's command. In other words, he sticks with the process. Noah believed God's promise. He knew that God would remember. And it was that kind of unwavering faith in God that gave him strength to carry on no matter what. That's what helped him stick with the process. And God used it to help Noah grow. He used it to help his family see the glory of God. Was Noah perfect? No, of course not. We'll see that next week. But Noah was faithful. When he was tempted to give up, he stuck with it. When things did not go his way, he stuck with it. When monotony and frustration and disappointment set in, he stuck with it. Because Noah knew that this wasn't about him. He knew that his life was all about God. So, so do we stick with the process? In a fast food world where we're used to getting it our way right away, we don't really like to stick with the process. When we are tempted to give up, we easily give up. And we all know people who have. When things don't go our way, we too easily give up, and we all know people who have. Don't give up on God's process for your growth. Stick with the process. Because when we do, when we stick with the process, God uses it. He uses it to make us His children who have hearts that are more fully dedicated to him. So that it can be said of us, like Noah, that we walk with God. And when we walk with God, he remembers. Let's pray.